about to witness the strength of knowledge. This is Steve Dace. Raising a banner of bold colors, no pale pastels. People should not be afraid of their governments. Governments should be afraid of their people. Our rights are inherent and essential, derived from our maker. That is liberty, and liberty will reign in America. This is Steve Dace. And greetings, happy Friday. Welcome to the Steve Dace Show podcast here on Westwood One. I am Steve Dace. Todd and Aaron are here as well. We love it when you join us too. Steve at stevedace.com is how you can email us. D-E-A-C-E is how you spell the last name. You can like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show. And if you're new to our podcast or maybe you're a regular, you just haven't done this yet. If you're sitting there on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbay, etc., if you could click... That little subscribe button right there, it takes two seconds. The more of you that do that, it turns out, the more of you that end up doing that because the more this grows, other people see its growth and like, hey, this looks like a show that, you know, with so many other options out there, this seems to be one that a lot of people like, so let me give it a shot as well. So that's how you can help us to spread the word. And if you have a few minutes today to leave us a positive review, those help as well. Many of you have already done that and we thank you for that as well. Uh, We just wrapped up production for the television show that we do for CRTV each and every day. And it was the Dace Group Roundtable. I'm going to go ahead and throw the promo out of of why people want to watch the show today. Indeed. That's a hint. That, That is what inspired what I think might be the best two minutes that's ever aired on CRTV. Not just our show, <clears throat> pardon me, but I mean, I mean the network as a whole. This is something you don't want to miss, and you get our reaction to it in real time as a panel, because it was the first time any of us saw it. We just had a really good time today with John Miller and Chris Pandolfo from Conservative Review, and you're like, hey, Steve, how come it takes, um, how come you have two guys on when uh, you don't have a lady on in the, in the spot. Well, it takes two guys to do one woman's job. That's why. So if we don't have Allie or Shannon here, then it requires two guys to pick up the slack for their considerable contributions to the program. So we want to thank Chris and John for joining us. And if you want to watch our show today on CRTV, crtv.com, promo code DACE, D-E-A-C-E. Use my last name there for a discounted subscription. And don't forget, we offer a free trial period. So if you try it during the free time and you don't like it before it expires, cancel it. You're not charged with anything at all. And that won't just get you access to our show every day, but every show that is produced by CRTV from the great one, Mark Levin, on down to the rest of us. So CRTV.com, promo code DACE. All right, gentlemen, you ready for some Feedback Friday? Share the love. All right, let's get to it. Al will lead us off this week. Al says, "I, I think you are spot on in your analysis of the futility of American foreign policy post 9 11. But I struggle with what our policy should be. What is the sweet spot between trying to export U.S. democracy to people who want nothing to do with it and sticking our heads in the sand while 9-11 or another totalitarian threat like a Nazi Germany uh, brews, comes to the surface? How do we do that while still having Israel's back? Maybe we should reconsider having Israel's back. Al, this is a topic I've actually thought a lot about the last few years and we've discussed on and off the air we've written about it Um, I think 
the speech the president gave last May in Riyadh should be the new doctrine of the United States. We have, we have, when it comes to the Middle East, we have, outside of our own vested national interests, when you threaten us as a people, we have a line you cannot cross. You cannot existentially threaten Israel. Now, I do think it may be time to reconsider how we are supporting Israel. I'm becoming more sympathetic to the view we should stop giving them foreign aid. And because we use that sometimes uh, as, as a means by which to have influence on them and tell them, the gloves are off, you defend yourselves, you guys are doing this in some respects better than we are. So when you think you need a strike, you do so. We're not going to try to foist any more fake two-state solutions or anything else on you. That was a miserable failure. All it did was put a terrorist organization right there on your doorstep. Um, so... You do what you think is right within your national interest, and if anybody threatens you, you know, we're big brother here, essentially. You call us up, and we're there. Um, But aside from an existential threat to Israel, I, I I think we need to vanquish our ideological biases. We have tried... Interventionism isn't possible. It just, it's not, it's not possible in this world. We don't live in the same world as 1798. And, oh, by the way, one of the first things our founding fathers ever did after they formed this country is fought an undeclared war against Muslim invaders who were kidnapping our troops on the Barbary Coast and taking them as POWs. So, so even our own founding fathers, and, and please explain to me how you're going to get more constitutionally pure than the guys that wrote and ratified the damn thing, okay? Even our own founding fathers were like, well, you know, we can't just let them keep taking our people, so do something about it. Non-interventionism sounds great until you come into the real world. It is, and I, and I say this with all due respect, because I, I'm very fond in, on, in other areas and sympathetic to our liberty friends who preach this. But it, it, non-interventionism is the welfare state of the right. It sounds great in theory that we could just all share and get along. But it fails to recognize the realities of human nature. We can't. As William Penn famously said, if men were angels, we wouldn't need government. You know, I saw a prominent liberty leader tweet out the other day, you're not pro-life if you're anti-war. Or, I'm sorry, you're not pro-life unless you're anti-war. So we just let Hitler gas all those Jews? We let him and the, and, and the Italians and the, and the uh, Japs hegemonically, is that even a word, uh, take over the planet? Assuming they'll just leave us alone, right? If we leave them alone, even while they're not leaving everybody else alone because they're invading them. It's, it, come on. We have to accept the world. I say this to my non-interventionist friends. What I say to my welfare state friends, you have to accept the world for as it is, not as you prefer it to be. Now, that does not mean many of the criticisms our non-interventionist friends have had about our foreign policy are not true. They're right. But they're not really arguing against interventionism. 
What they're really arguing against is the brand of interventionism that we have chosen to attempt. Sort of this neocon view. This idea that um, we, can, we can take the next step. We, we used to be a beacon for liberty. And if you wanted freedom, you came to us and we helped you. That's kind of how it's worked here for, for generations in America. That now, um, we sell you on it. You may not, even if you don't want it. Well, you just don't know that you want it yet because we haven't showed you just how cool it really is. We're evangelists now. There's a, we're, not, we're not watchmen. We're not guardians. We're not defenders. We're evangelists, proselytizers. And we're going to take freedom and hand it to you whether you want it or you understand it or not. That's sort of the neocon view. That's a miserable failure. It is an, it's a systemic failure. And those advocating that view should be completely discredited. Because the events of history since 9-11 discredit them. It doesn't work. You go back to the questions we asked earlier this week. There's, no relig- there's less religious freedom in Afghanistan now than there was when the Taliban controlled most of the country. Can I say something really quick? Yep. Uh, on that note, uh, before everybody just decides to you know, separate the wheat from the chaff and always make sure you're in the wheat section on this, you, you got to look yourself in the mirror on this. I, I am guilty in my own way over time of the very thing Steve is talking about, believing too much. I mean, I have paved the road to hell with my good intentions mm-hmm. Uh, on this front some things i've been right about some things i've been wrong about um it's really important that you look in the mirror on this and because we have a what a we just 18 year sample now at the very least right we're not we're not just we're not even just reacting to one failure in iraq we we now have essentially the cognizant lifetime of aaron's generation yes that's a lot of that's a lot of data yeah and the problem we have is we, we can't be dogmatic here, Al, because when you're dogmatic going in, you're projecting your assumptions on the other side of the equation. And Which is the opposite of know thy enemy. Yes, and you can't do that because even when you fought World War I and World War II, you were fighting aberrant wicked evil well really to, uh, world war one was essentially a colonialist argument let's be honest different colonial empires se- sex of the same freaking habsburg family arguing over who was going to essentially control the family fortune it's the very okay? definition of fighting the old war yeah world war one and world war two really can't be compared but in terms of their motivations but they yes. can be compared in terms of the way the alliances broke down in that One of the reasons there was unity against the extremism of Nazi Germany is because it was so clearly antithetical to the views of the West, what they were doing, once it became known what they were Mm -hmm. doing. And one of the reasons why the U.S. was so slow to get involved in World War I is because it was largely a colonial dispute. And we almost made German our official language, guys, in the 18th century, and wouldn't be a country without the Germans. A lot of Americans were German immigrants. So we're, not German. Really in, we're not really in a huge hurry to go over there and topple the Kaiser. And we actually borrowed Bismarck's military techniques and imported them into our own military. 
when you're dealing, what you're dealing with here, this is not Western civilization. They don't have the same views of life as we do. They don't believe they can have the same relationship with God that the West does. Well, the West used to, I should say. Their worldview is 180 degrees different than ours. And even when we have similarities, like it's wrong to steal, there's a reason why we will put thieves in a prison and attempt to rehabilitate them, and they will just cut off their hands right then and there where they, where they stand. So even when we do come to the same moral conclusions, we're not starting from the same premise here. We literally have, other than each of us are fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of God as human beings, from a philosophical standpoint, we have literally nothing in common with these people. Nothing. That's why even if you don't like Jews, you ought to be a defender of Israel because it's the only nation in that part of the world that has values in common with our own. And so when you, when you have a dogmatic view, I'm going to be a non-interventionist. I'm going to be a neocon. We're not going to get involved no matter what. And we're going to get involved no matter what. <laughs> when you have these dogmatic views and the other side, they're like, uh, we don't play that game. We're not, we're not playing the same game you play. They're not applicable. You have to accept the world for what it is. What I would say to my non-interventionist friends is if, if it's really true that until we started playing games with OPEC and started uh, cozying up to Israel in the 1940s, that, that the Middle East didn't care and left us alone, why did we fight the Barbary Coast pirates? Where, where, the book of Revelation opens with seven letters to churches in Asia Minor. That's modern-day Turkey. Where did all those churches go? Did they just have a vote one day? The Cappadocian Christians get together in the third century, have a vote. You know, or actually it'd be the 6th century, the Muhammad, the Muhammad uh, horde showed up and they thought, you know, we, we kind of maybe like this religion instead. Let's have a, you know, a referendum. Are we Christians? or that's, No, that's ignorant of history. That's not what happened. Islam is dominionist by nature. The Holy Roman Empire wasn't formed in order to create some sort of Catholic hegemonic dominance of the West. It was created to save it because the Muslims were three blocks south of Paris. And Rome was next. They were taking Spain, Portugal. Every Christianity would be, they took the Holy Land. Christianity was gone. You'd all be wearing prayer. You'd all be going with prayer mats and shawls. That's why they did it. They came to us because they're a dominionist religion. That's inherent to their cause. When they got rid of European colonialism, I shared a clip today from, from an Egyptian news, uh, journalist, God bless him, talking about the caliphate sucks, guys. You ever heard of the Ottoman Empire? They executed Muslims. He's right. When they got rid of the white colonialists, guess what they then did? Colonized themselves with the Ottoman Empire, and they, they were terrible, terrible bloodthirsty tyrants. That was the last caliphate we had. How many of you listening right now know any of the history I'm telling you? How many? And, and what we should have done on September 12, 2001 was said, make sure every one of those kids in, a, in a, an American school knows this. And most of you listening right now, including some of you that have served, I'm guessing, probably don't know any of the history, anything that I'm telling you right now. And that's why we're losing. It's not because we've lost our resolve so we're losing. We're losing, so we're losing our resolve. 
It's the other way around. And we're losing because we don't are we don't or we're not willing to accept the truth of what these people are, what they believe, and and therefore what would be required as a remedy. We don't want that to be true. We want to believe what George W. Bush vapidly said, that freedom is in the heart of every human being. No, sin is in the heart of every human being. And that sin says, well, I want to use my freedom to dominate you and not let you use your freedom to dominate me. That's what our definition of freedom is, east of Eden. That's why this is the longest experiment in human freedom in history. Because every time we try it, we can't do it. Because we don't like each other. We're bad people. We're sinful. We're fallen. So I go back to what the president said in May. I would just like to see them implement it. It's very simple. If you want to do business with us and you want to be our friend, regardless of what language you speak, what church you attend, whether you even attend church at all, we are friends. And if you want to be our enemies, regardless of what language you speak, what church you attend, or whether you attend church at all, you're our enemy. That's it. That's and and you're gonna we're not gonna communicate which you are to you. See, that's what we're doing right now. You got John McCain's magical and Lindsey Graham's magical Syrian freedom fighters. If these Syrian freedom fighters existed, we'd have cut Assad's throat three years ago and put them in charge. But they don't exist, and that's why we keep having to bomb Assad in between deciding we need to keep him in place to fight ISIS or not. Because we know what would happen if you toppled Assad would be worse. You're like, how can you be worse than Assad? Yeah, that's the point I'm trying to make. How can you be worse than Saddam Hussein? How about Ayatollah Khomeini's in charge of Baghdad now? Do you think that's worse? I kind of think it's worse. You fought, we fought 18 years in Iraq so that the Ayatollahs could be in charge. Hello, that's worse. Your enemy is telling you who they are. Listen to them. Listen. Preach. How many more people must die? How many more innocent Arabs and Muslims must die? How many more fathers and mothers leave their kids for a year or two, may or may not come home? How long before we will listen to our enemy and and say, you know what? I think we're going to finally just kind of go with who you say you are and listen to it. At the same time, you essentially have to be anally probed to jump on an airplane in Des Moines, Iowa. What in the, what fresh hell is this? It's called day one. Yeah. I want, every time, every time I go out to go speak somewhere and fly, I see some old lady who fits no profile of anybody that's ever threatened anybody having to take her fake hip off behind a curtain. Why? Well, we don't want to racially or religiously profile anybody. You know how many hijackings that have resulted in deaths Israel has had since like the 1978, I think? It's a low number. uh, It's zero. Yeah. Because they profile. Yeah. Because they know their enemy. We have to accept this part of the world for what it is. We, We can't... We're trying to do with our foreign policy what progressives are trying to do with the welfare state. We're trying to create an equality of outcomes... We can make Syria free. We can make Iraq free. No, we can't. Because freedom didn't come from ourselves. 
We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created, 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 created equal, endowed by their creator with certain unalienable God-given rights. They don't believe any of these things over there. And I don't care how nice and well-armed our troops are. I don't care how, how liberal the rules of engagement are, how vicious and savage they are, or I don't care how kinder and gentler they are. Worldviews don't change that way. And so we need to look at it at a case-by-case basis. I would never rule out trying to help foment dissent and freedom within, but tell me again, tell me again why we want regime change in Syria when we have no idea what the, whether, whether there's, what the dissent really even is. And yet there's hundreds of thousands of the next generation of Iranians taking to the streets of Tehran, shaking their fist Tiananmen Square style at the Ayatollahs and we did nothing. That's where your intervention goes. We did nothing. We did absolutely nothing to help them get the word out, to say we're with you, especially because you want to renegotiate, if you're President Trump, that crappy Iran deal? You want to talk about a leverage point? You want to get some concessions out of the Ayatollahs? Say, hey, unless we see a few more gains for minorities and women's rights in your, in your country, then uh, in the next round of negotiations of this Iran deal, we're going to freeze your assets and we're going to start funding the dissent in your country. And don't threaten us with bombing us because you're doing that already. You're sending out terrorists already. Okay, we're going to actually maybe start fighting back this time. Now, that sounds like an intervention. I could get behind that intervention, Todd. You in? Sure. Because that's how we used to do things around here. And that's how we used to do it when Billy Graham walked through the front door of a White House, regardless of which political party's in charge. But now we hold Islamic iftars in the White House, regardless of which political party's in charge. So we don't do things that way anymore. We need it simpler, less dogmatic. If you want to be our friend, we will be your friend. And if you want to be our enemy, we will happily oblige. Because we got Moab's just gathering dust. It's real simple. Want to make money? <laughs> By golly, you got something in common. So do we. You know, you guys got a ton of oil. Our people love buying that stuff. We will love to make you rich. Call off the dogs. And if you don't, well, we're going to sick our dogs on you. I'm in. That's it. And then you're going to a, a, a culture that respects strength and believes itself to be an honor-based culture. Now you're speaking their language. They understand leverage. They get that. They've been playing that game with each other. They've been killing each other with these sand dunes even before. Why, Muhammad wasn't the first Arab to, to jump on a horse and try to invade people for his religion. He's just the best at it. They've been doing this to themselves as Bedouin peoples before Western, when the Western, when Western civilization was still burning wicker men, they were doing this to themselves. Before there was a St. Patrick or St. Boniface or a single Christian missionary reached the Norsemen or, or, the, or the agrarian cults of Gaul and Britannia, they were doing this to themselves. You have to accept them for what they are, not what you think they are, or project and hope them to be. Did I answer his question? Oh, yes. And if I may, you have a uh, 19th century spirit animal in the form of uh, 
Brit Charles James Napier, who, when Hindu priests were complaining to him about uh, the fact that they were being prohibited uh, from uh, the funeral practice of burning widows alive on their husband's funeral pyre, he said this, Be it so. This burning of widows is your custom. Prepare the funeral pile, but my nation also has a custom. When men burn women alive, we hang them and confiscate all their property. My carpenters shall therefore erect gibbets on which to hang all concerned when the widow is consumed. Let us all act according to national customs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mr. Trump does not have a base, Steve. He has two bases. The first is the true believers who will follow daddy into the maw of hell. The second base is the conservatives who grudgingly voted for him because he wasn't Hillary and because his election would hopefully blunt the advance of the left. I think he may slowly be losing that second base. The first base won't be enough to sustain him, and he'll find that out in a very rude fashion, I think, starting this November. In the meantime, it's time for some very prominent people who identify as Republicans to break all affiliation with the rest of the toothless swamp curators and do so publicly and vigorously. We already have a remnant. Why deny the inevitable? The sooner we embrace this reality, the sooner we can begin to build something new. This is the mo- this is most true of those who follow Christ. E. Stanley Jones was... St- once asked a woman, how did you get to the foot of a cross? How did you get to the foot of the cross? And she said, when I was at the end of my rope. That's from Lee A. Dean. To me, I think Lee's no, Lee has two different emails there. Yes. The first email is the is what he thinks about this particular political Correct. situation with Trump in this moment. And then the and that's the micro uh the you know, the microcosm. The larger, and we would probably disagree with each other and maybe even lead to some extent on the way he describes the second. Yes. Or the first, the, the, the microcosm. First, the first. But on the macro, dude, we've, we're already there. We're just waiting for everybody else to arrive at the party. We got here like first. We're totally in on that. Yeah. There's no hope corporately on a macroeconomic level. There is zero zip zilch hope in the Republican Party. The only reason to vote Republican is because you are trying to ward off slow the rate of growth of the Visigoths coming over the wall to give your family enough time to get out. That's the only reason to do it. You're, you're, voting Republican is a rear guard action. You're not going on offense at all. It's like how they cut programs in Washington. They don't cut anything. They slow the rate of growth of it. Wait, we're going to increase it 6%, now we're going to do 35 And then the media yells, you're cutting stamps. No, we, we actually raised it by 3.5%. And then the first part, I'm not sure that we're there yet with that first part. I think the first part of the micro deal with Trump, because of the second part, I think people are going to give him, I think, I think outside of his cult, the cult, you're right, the cult will follow him into the mouth of hell. We all agree on that, all right? The second group of conservatives, because of where things are at in the Republican Party, are probably going to give him a lot more rope since he's their la- the last la- the last lifeline that they have left. Your thoughts, Todd? Well, I think that's exactly right. I mean, I I go to church with many of these uh, people. As as long as the contrast is the progressivism we are currently dealing with, uh, for, and and we we those of us who have um, we've advocated uh, find another way alternative uh, party do something don't play the game uh, we've done that ad nauseum for a long 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 time we believe it uh, that's d- different than understanding 
again, Steve, as you just got done saying, the world as it is. And there are many, many people who are Christians, I think undeniably Christians, who are terrified of taking that step out in faith. Terrified. They are addicted to this drug called politics. Uh, and they the reasons will still be the same concerning short our, of our some spiritual of things- our spiritual forefathers saw seven plagues beat down on yes their on their enslavers yes and then like 5 minutes after they went out into the wilderness on their own nope, and things and down. things weren't instantly spoon-fed to them yep. they freaking went into the fetal this is the human condition you're hearing me yes yeah Laura, Bishop's, Laura Bishop writes, I have a question. Why did Paul Manafort sign on to the Trump campaign for free, knowing or suspecting that he was under surveillance for shady foreign business deals? And did Trump or um, uh, Kushner, his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, know about his shady foreign connections? Were they stupid slash naive, unaware, or thinking that Trump wouldn't win so they wouldn't potentially, or they'd have potentially lucrative future business deals? Yes. I, I think all those things are possible. Yeah. I, what's I the what's the new rule? Always assume the worst. Assume the worst about everybody. Yeah, you'll have fewer friends, but you're going to be right a lot. So, <laughs> <laughs> so while you while, while you while you're alone, while you have that Memorial Day picnic on your own, you've been parked there for a long time. When you're man. watching the Fourth of July fireworks, you're just sitting by yourself <laughs> on a lawn chair on the roof, right? You'll know you were right. You'll know you were right. <laughs> That guy sings God we Bless laugh, America Beautifully a cappella. No one will play an instrument with yes. them, but yes, it's wonderful. We're laughing, but these are tears of a clown. This is where we, this is our Thursday. We're, this is this is our natural habitat. It's our perpetual Facebook status. Three minutes after I tweeted last night, that after reading the Comey memos, I, I just and I probably maybe I should have clarified it better. What I meant was when there wasn't a bombshell was. All these people are bad, and all this just does is confirm it. Trump is double-minded. On one hand, he says Mike Flynn's untrustworthy. On the other hand, he says, well, don't punish him. Okay, how do you reconcile those things? We know Kent Comey is a self-righteous, sanctimonious hack. He comes across like that in his own notes. In his own notes, the dude has given himself helmet stickers. And I did this because I'm really cool. I mean, that's, that's in his own notes. And so after I tweeted this last night, I'm not kidding you, the first two replies to, I I don't see any real bombshells here. The first person said, damn day, she'll just let Trump get away with anything these days. The next tweet was, Steve, you're basically Chuck Todd now. I'm not, I'm not. Those are the first two replies, guys. This is every day in my life. Yes. It's every day. So assume the worst about everyone. You'll probably be right. And as I've been telling some of my buddies in Washington, no heroes, only villains. No heroes, only villains. This is not a time for a hero. If you think you're a hero or you think you're working for a hero, keep them covered. Keep them safe until the time is right. This is like, this is Luke and Leia sent off into exile at the end of Revenge of the Sith. When the time is right for rebellion, sound the shofar. But right now, you're just going to go out there and get mowed down, man. You're just going to get mowed down. If you're, this, is what, this is Ted Cruz right now. I write something positive for Time Magazine about Trump 
defying the Washington establishment, naming him one of the most influential people in America. And now suddenly I'm a Trump hack. And I disagree with Trump's Syria policy. And, I'm, and my own constituents are telling me, why won't I support the president? This is going on everywhere right now. So if you want to know, man, where's like, where are, the, where are our guys at? If they're smart, waiting. I know, I, I don't, I, this is one of the few areas where Daniel Horowitz and I disagree. Because we usually finish each other's sentences, man. We've got a total bromance going on here. Like share a brain. But we disagree on Ben Sass. Now he may be right in his, he may turn out to be right in his skepticism of Ben Sass in the end. But right now, if I were working in Ben Sass's office, he's doing exactly what I'd be telling him to do. Save it for the wedding night, brother. Save it for the wedding night. This ain't it. Make it count. Okay? Duck. Don't make yourself a target. Wait for the time is right. Then you drop your payload. Not right now. There's no reward for being a hero. We don't want heroes right now. We want to kill each other with, every, with, with each side's villains. It's a time of self-loathing. It, 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 we are simultaneously fear and loathing in Las Vegas. And in those days, everyone did what was wise in their own eyes. No heroes, only villains. Only villains. Now, there will be a time, I hope, when the galaxy is ready for the return of the Jedi. But today is not yet that day. This is the day, you know when Aragorn says, there may be a day when the resolve of men will fail. But today is not yet that day. Actually, today is that day. Today is the day the resolve of men will fail. You will gain nothing. And you won't even have a chance to win. You're Don Quixote attacking a windmill with a toothbrush. You got no shot. Wait your turn. Be discerning. There's nothing brave about unless you're saving someone's life, but there's nothing brave without another innocent life at stake running unarmed into a 21-gun salute, guys. You're just, you're, you might as well, you're doing what that gay activist did last week. You're just lighting yourself on fire, giving it yourself up. Nothing heroic happening there. No heroes, only villains. I want to do one more before we run out of time, all right? This is something a buddy of mine sent me. And um, it's about our Middle East policy. He says, I'm, I'm going to keep his name out, okay? And when I read the email, you'll realize why. He says, here's anecdotal evidence from Operation Iraqi Freedom that I teach in combat airspace control. And I teach this to new students, colonels, and flag officers from many countries. The coalition provisional government led by Paul Bremer in May of 2003 disallowed any former Ba'ath Party members from holding jobs in the newly formed government. Do you guys remember what the Ba'ath Party was? That was Saddam Hussein's political party, the Sunni, the Sunni sect of Islam in Iraq. Okay. On the surface, that might appear to be prudent. However, every Iraqi civilian air traffic controller was a Ba'ath Party member as required by Saddam. Meaning, even if you didn't really believe in the Sunni sect of Islam, even if you never went to a Ba'ath Party meeting, you had to take an oath to the Ba'ath Party to get the job, okay? It was basically, he says, their union card. 
which means when the time came to turn the civilian airspace back over to the Iraqis, can you see where this is going? Mm -hmm. There were no trained Iraqi controllers. That means U.S. military and civilian contracted controllers had to run Iraq's air traffic control system for more than three years then the, uh, then the government got the bright idea of hiring, quote, good Iraqis off the street because jobs, you know. So good Iraqi shows up with his lunch pail and great hopes of becoming an air traffic controller at a facility. Controllers go through an intense 16 to 18 week training at academies to determine if he or she can actually get through a facility rating program, which depending on their complexity of the facility can be eight to 24 months after graduating from the academy. This is almost like being a doctor and having a residency after med school, right? Can go on for years. I taught for two years at the Army Air Traffic Control School, and there were times we'd graduate a student who we believed could receive a facility rating, but it would inevitably wash out some 15 to 18 months after entering the Army. So I pound this lesson learned into every audience's head I get to teach. Aaron is right. We don't and haven't thought even two steps ahead in our Middle Eastern policy all these years. Because, folks, I can promise you, if, if after toppling a dictatorship, our government hadn't thought through, hey, how are we going to make sure the skies remain, or the, air, the civil air defense is good? If they haven't figured out, the, if, they didn't, if they didn't know have a plan for the civil air defense, they didn't have a plan for rebuilding homes, for getting people fed. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. If, they, if, they didn't, if we didn't have a plan for basic civil defense... We're not even to the point now of actual cultural infrastructure. We never got there. Aaron, your thoughts from my buddy responding to what you said here on the show the other day. Uh, That's incredibly well said. It's obvious... What did you you tell the, uh, the college students that we presented to last night? Conservatism is not an ideology. It's an observational science. Mm -hmm. Same thing could be said about foreign policy, except we have tried to put some sort of ideology into foreign policy, and it does not compute. We've tried to put some sort of progressive ideal uh, on foreign policy. What did you just say a few minutes ago, George Bush? Everybody has freedom in their hearts. No, that that flies in the face of any sort of observational science of that part of the world at all. And so we get war after war, skirmish after skirmish, bomb drop after bomb drop, and nothing changes. Because we just don't know what we're doing. We're just trying stuff. <laughs> we're just... See you next year, Syria. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll bring a Moab next time. Yeah, I, cor- I incorrectly mentioned that we dropped Moab on Syria. One of you corrected me on that. It was, right? it, it was Afghanistan. Afghanistan. So thank you for bringing that up so I could correct the record on that. Yeah, We dropped other stuff on Syria. <laughs> dropped lots of stuff on Syria. <laughs> yes. Syria got the multiple choice test. Um, I used to say, when I first started, when I made the switch from sports talk to news talk radio, was really when the Bush administration was going down for the quagmire of Iraq. And I used to ask this question at the time. 
because I know some of you, and I'll bring it up now, because some of you are going to say, well, Steve, what would you have done instead? Here's how you know this was never a war for oil, that Bush didn't invade Iraq for his Halliburton buddies. Here's how you know this, okay? Because if all those things were true, it would have gone much better. If we had done, if we had, if we had done this for oil, and if we had done this for Dick Cheney's uh, Halliburton invested investment, what would have happened is we would have had all that refinery tech the day after the Saddam statue was toppled and we grabbed him out of that spider hole. All right. The, the, within 24 to 48 hours, the trucks would have rolled in. The refinery tech would have rolled in and we'd have been pumping their crude out of the ground, baby. And what we would have done we had had our refineries there pumping that crude out of the ground, processing it into however you need to process petroleum to make the various products that are petroleum-based, which are legion in our economy today. We'd have been selling this at below. We would have, we would have undersold OPEC. Whatever OPEC, let's say oil was 75 bucks a barrel, we'd have been doing it for 50 and we've been offering that price to our allies that helped us invade Iraq and then making all the other countries that, that did not pay more. And then we would have turned around, given the proceeds from, from those sales to the Iraqi people and bribed them with it and said, now here's, here's the gross domestic product that is the basis for your own market-based economy. Go and do likewise. Praise Allah. We just want free oil. That's what we want. We want cheap, free oil to sustain our economy for the foreseeable future. We want cheap gas. We want petroleum-made products that are cheap. We're not, we don't want to ever have to buy a, a damn thing from OPEC ever again because we have our own renewable resource, and it's called you. But since it's your oil, and we believe the worker is worth his hire, and we're all capitalists here, we're gonna, you're going to get rich off it. We want it. We're just going to be your exclusive customer, us and our clientele. The coalition of the willing, as it was called at the time. Us and our clientele. We're going to, in other words, what I'm suggesting here is we would have created an alternative cartel to take down OPEC. Because we have, we have more weapons than OPEC. And, and now we have enough crude to compete with them. Put those two things together and son of a gun, you are Denzel untrading day. King Kong ain't got nothing on me. Because I can do, you're going to buy your oil from me because you know what? I can do what OPEC can't. I can aim missiles at you. OPEC can't do that. Now, if this was a war for oil, if this was colonialism, if this was about enriching Halliburton, dang Skippy, we'd have done all those things. And right now, man... Dude, the, the, the Joint Chiefs of Staff would have to buy bigger underwear because they'd be carrying sets like freaking lemons into work, swinging a big-ass stick. And you wouldn't be bombing Syria anymore because if there were any Sy Syrian freedom fighters, they'd be all like, dude, man, we're going to align with them. They can pump our oil out of the ground too, make us rich like they did the Iraqis. Assad wouldn't be gassing his people. He'd be in a gas chamber by now. So that's how you know this wasn't a war for oil. Because oil companies don't mess around. We see it in Iowa. You create your own ethanol mandate. Dude, man, we're not going to let you create an alternative resource that competes with oil without a fight. Oil companies didn't get all this power because they play tiddlywinks. They got business practices that make Bill Gates in the late 1990s, man, look like the Salvation freaking Army. 
So if we had done this for oil, if we had done this for Halliburton, poop would have gotten real, real quick like. And we'd all be a lot richer, a lot fewer people would have died, and they'd be praising a law in the United States in about half the damn Middle East right about now. That's what I would have done differently. Final thoughts, Todd. Men without chests would at least consider that. Or men with chests, excuse me, would at least consider that. Um, but we have uh, a lot of... I almost go- dropped a Ric Flair. Woo, right yeah, there. Yeah. I'm sorry, I got a little carried away. My bad. We have a lot of uh, <laughs> a good intentions. And um, when you are in war, good intentions other than winning mm. will get you killed. Preach. Come on now. We're going black church right now. You go, you go down that road. I'm going to stand up. I'm going to raise up my hand. I got to get, get, that's an amen right there. That's an amen. Aaron. Yeah. Uh, we, war really, we talk about, we've talked about this before. War is terrible. It's people die. Innocent people die. It's necessary though. If you try to fight a politically correct war, or you try to somehow fight a war where people don't die, or you try to mitigate how many things go boom and how many things are destroyed, you don't get the essence of war, which is why it should never be entered into lightly, and no conflict should be entered into without a lot of thought. But we seem to try to be tiptoeing around the tulips, when it comes to the Middle East, we'll, we'll drop a bomb here, drop a Moab there, send in a team here, get some SEALs killed there. And it's the same thing. It's just this fighting goes on and on and on. And that's frustrating to watch. 25 years of my life and we have been involved in the Middle East in some form or fashion and what has changed? Nothing. Nothing has changed. It's gotten worse. No, we've gotten to the point now that we're asking your generation to fight the same war your parents did. Yeah. Almost. Yeah. Let's end on a good note here. Oh, I kind of like my little Ric Flair rant right there. Woo! I, I kind of like that. I'm kind of, I'm feeling that. Lawrence in Baltimore says, you guys that are the programming have been dropping bombs over the last few weeks and it's been glorious from the excellent what happened while we were away segments to the massive trolling of the with the superhero tournaments and the Marxist madness tournaments um, I've just been thrilled with the approach you guys are taking with the show this year thank you Lawrence man we really appreciate that thank you very much thanks to all of you that send your feedback in who listen to us each and every day don't forget CRTV.com promo code DACE if you want to watch today's television show And not just us, but every single show we do each day at CRTV. Have a great weekend. Until Monday, John 317. This is Steve Dace. I like it, you. 